0: to the past few weeks getting ready uh, for this morning. We'll hear from uh, from our, our first choir ever. This is it. Take a picture, right? Like, first choir. So um, we'll hear from those guys uh, a little bit later uh, as we kind of round our time out. Uh, but you would to open up to John chapter 20, we practiced this a little bit at the beginning, uh, but we're going we're gonna to do it again, okay? Y'all ready? He is risen. He is risen. <laughs> he is risen. There we go. Yes, absolutely. Welcome to uh, Easter at Christ the King. Uh, I don't know if I introduced myself in the beginning. My name is Kirk, and I'm the pastor here. Uh, and I am really excited that you uh, are here with us as we come out of what Christians commonly refer to as Holy Week. Right, That is the week leading up to Easter Sunday, in which we remember the final days of the earthly ministry of Jesus we begin on Palm Sunday, that is last Sunday, and we culminate with Resurrection Sunday, that is uh, this morning. This is a really interesting season for a number of reasons, right? Guys can unapologetically wear pastels and seersuckers, right? So that makes it a little bit a little bit interesting. We, uh, we can accessorize, in fact, over-accessorizing is an impossibility uh, when it comes to Easter. You can wear a tie with tie clip, vest, blazer, pocket square, hat, ladies' heels, right? You can do it all. Anything goes because it is Easter, and you don't have to feel the slightest bit creepy about it. Why? Well, because it's Easter, right? We can brunch, search for eggs, And enjoy sweet friendship, all of which we say praise God for. It It is truly an incredible, incredible season. At the same time, these things are all secondary to the event that occupies a central position in human history. What does that mean? It means everything revolves around this event that we have come together this morning to celebrate. That being the resurrection of Jesus. For thousands of years, God's people have come together on the first day of the week to celebrate His power. God's power over death. Somberness settles in on Friday. For those of you who were perhaps with us for our Good Friday service, let me explain some of the elements present this morning. We had these um, seven candles uh, lit on these communion tables. So we read aloud the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. As we read each one, we extinguish a candle until there was one candle remaining at the very end. And as, as Jesus dies, we blow out that last candle and we leave in darkness. It's a somber scene. It really is. It's unique. It's difficult to explain if you haven't, if you haven't experienced it. On Friday, there is a, there's a somberness that settles. But now, the, the somberness, the sorrow is cast out by celebration as news of a king who conquers death begins to spread. News that causes dead hearts to beat again. News that totally changes the way that we see God. News that totally changes the way that we see ourselves and others. News that changes the way we see the world and our place in it. News that speaks of a purpose, a greater good, and a higher mission. News. News that brings unity to that which is disjointed, and peace to that which is chaotic. And whether you would this morning identify as a Christian or not, the importance of the resurrection. and our culture's fascination with Jesus is undeniable. Let's just consider the facts for a moment. A 33-year-old carpenter claiming to be God who commands the minds and imaginations of those who hear him speak, challenging societal norms and expectations, demanding our attention, combine this with a very, gruesome, and public crucifixion. Followed by eyewitness testimony to a bodily resurrection, and you have a perfect storm for human interest. Right? Interest that spans ethnic, generational, gender, and socioeconomic lines. No one is exempt. Because there is nothing in creation like this news. He is risen. How important is that statement to our faith? How important is, is this statement to our lives well, we don't have to speculate? We don't have to guess this morning. Paul articulates it beautifully in his first letter to the Corinthians as he writes. Man, Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, Paul writes, because we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Paul writes, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Those Christians who have gone before have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Allow me to summarize what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians. If Jesus is not alive, then what I'm doing here this morning is a waste of time. If Jesus is not alive, then your being here this morning is a waste of time. If Jesus is not alive, then our faith, Paul writes, is is vain. It's in vain. Not only that, but he goes on to say that that we are misrepresenting God. And you, in spite of your faith, are still in your sins. And thus, still under a curse. With a fate mirroring that of all those believing in Jesus who have already passed. Nothingness. As Christians... The assumption made by Paul and others is that our lives are dictated by our faith. Did you get that? Right? Our lives are dictated by our faith. Right? That the resurrection shapes everything. Thus, if Jesus is not alive, if Jesus has not resurrected from the dead, then we are a people that are to be felt sorry for by the world. <laughs> because we live for nothing. That is to say that death wins. That there is nothing beyond what we see and feel here and now. This is as good as it gets, and there is no purpose to any of this. However, Jesus is alive. Which we assert with everything that we are, that he is, that the exact opposite of everything that we have just said is true. The, The proclamation of the gospel is not a waste of time. Our articulation of the gospel, our sharing of the gospel is not a waste of time, but incomprehensibly important. Faith is not vain, but fruitful and effective. It is meaningful and worthwhile. If Jesus is alive, then death does not have the final say. Jesus does. We are saved from our sins and beneficiaries of grace. There is purpose in all of this, while at the same time, there is more than all of this. If you're here this morning, interested in the resurrection, but struggling with doubt or disbelief, my desire for you is really simple. It's that as you walk away, you would walk away in light of what we see this morning, wanting to believe the resurrection. That is, as we read from John's account of the resurrection, that as we read from Paul's articulation of the importance of the resurrection, that as we observe Jesus' handling of those who struggle, that we would be willing to come to this story that is familiar to many of us, although it does not escape me, that perhaps it's new to some in this room, and prepare yourself, it is going to jack you up with humility and transparency, considering these events and interactions of Jesus with the various positions represented. Let's go to John chapter 20, as we read John's account of that first Easter morning. John writes in John chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that stone had been taken away from the tomb, so she ran. And went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Assuming to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came. Following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed. Verse 9. For as Yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went to their homes. But, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them that, Take it away, my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And he said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Which Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and, and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and my God and your God. Verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Man, through his interaction with Mary, we see the blueprint for the post resurrection message of God to the world. Big picture, right? This is day. One, Jesus would spend 39 additional days appearing to and eating with his disciples. In Matthew chapter 28, I'm going to switch gears a little bit because I want us to make a connection to something that we see in John chapter 20. In Matthew 28, we are provided insight into the moments leading up to what Christians refer to as the ascension. That is Jesus' physical return to the Father, where he had been for an eternity prior to his incarnation. Interestingly enough, it is here that Jesus provides instruction for his people that serve to drive the direction of our lives. Instruction that serves to to drive our lives. It's here that we find the answer to the question, why in the world does my neighbor insist on talking to me about Jesus all the time? To turn every conversation towards Christ and the resurrection. Matthew records these words for us from Jesus in the 28th chapter of his gospel. Listen to what he has to say. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, knowing this that I am with you always. There's a lot of familiarity between what we see in John chapter 20 and what we see in Matthew chapter 28. The commands are similar. What we find is that the message of God to the world is John chapter 20, verse 17. That death cannot hold Jesus captive. We need John chapter 20, verse 17, in order to best understand the way that we go about living in obedience to Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. As Christians, we can say this, this morning, that in order for the church to be most effective to the call of Christ in Matthew chapter 28, that being the Great Commission, to go and tell and teach, to baptize and to make disciples as we do all of this, we must first be obedient to the call of Christ in John chapter 20. What is our message to the world? What is our message to our co-workers, to our teammates, to our classmates, to our neighbors, to our friends, and to our family? And it's this. Jesus is alive. He is risen, and consequently our relationship with God is totally new. A reality stemming from the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. What does the resurrection show us? What does it speak of to you and I? How is it practically applicable to our lives 2,000 years later? Why is it important? Because we understand that we are separated. We understand that our relationship with God is broken. We feel it. We see it. As we seek satisfaction from the things of the world, we are left wanting his need, forgiveness from sin, and fellowship, friendship with with God. The resurrection says that what Jesus has done on the cross as the perfect and final sacrifice is capable of reconciling us is capable of of taking us from our sinful state, separated and warring against a a holy God, and and bringing us into friendship with him. The Bible speaks of this as adoption. We're not simply friends with God through our faith in the resurrected Christ and his word for you and I, but we are family, sons and, and daughters. That's a major shift, isn't it? And as a result, our relationship with God is new. The resurrection cements the sufficiency of Jesus' perfect life and his substitutionary death to bring sinners to God. Jesus tells Mary in John chapter 20 that he will be returning to his God and Father. But not only his God and Father, but theirs, her God and her Father. We're going to see this a little bit more in just a moment as we we progress through our time. If you're here this morning as a follower of Jesus, know that your relationship with God exists solely because of what Jesus has done for you. On Easter morning, we proclaim news that is offensive to the Jew. It is offensive foolishness to the Gentile, a crucified king who has conquered death because we believe along with Paul that God has many people in this city whom he calls to himself as his spirit stirs hearts to look upon him and save. And if this is you today, don't fight Don't Don't fight it. The resurrection changes everything because it says that God is able to bring life Forth from death. It says that that God is able to, to extend breath. That He's able to bring hope and clarity to that which has been hopeless and utterly confusing. The message of Jesus, John chapter 20, go and tell. The message of Jesus, Matthew chapter 28, go and teach message that is reserved only for those who deny or doubt the one that God's people are need of being reminded of as well. Like right? the resurrection of Jesus accomplishes what? Well, it saves us. And it sustains us. Right? So regardless of, of how you would identify today, know that the resurrection is applicable and needed. Perhaps you hear this. Okay? You, you hear what I'm saying and And you say to yourself, and that sounds great. But I have been absolutely scorched by the church. I've been hurt, and I have questions that no one seems willing to answer. I struggle with belief and very as to how to even begin applying all that you are talking about. I want to say to you this morning this. You're not alone. You're not not alone. Know that the struggles that you feel are not new. Now, I don't say that in any effort to, to minimize your struggles, but instead to say that Jesus speaks toward them. In the resurrection, Jesus displays kindness and compassion to the doubter as he calls him into a renewed faith. The church has not always dealt as kindly and compassionately as we ought to. I have not always dealt as kindly and compassionately as I ought to. However, in the resurrection... In the resurrection, we find hope. We find hope for those who struggle with doubt as well as a blueprint for how we go about dealing with those that we love and those that are closest to us who are familiar with this struggle. Look back with me at John chapter 20. Let's step back into the text for a moment. John chapter 20, verse 19. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he grieved on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you uh, forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Now that's going to prove to be a really important point as we progress forward in the story. He wasn't there, so, so what happened? Verse 25, the other disciples came, they, they told him, we have seen the Lord. Man, what a bummer to miss out on that meeting, right? What was Thomas doing when all the, all the other disciples were hanging out? But he said to them, unless I see his, his hands Mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side. What does Thomas say? He says, I will, I will never believe. Jesus alludes to a new relationship with God experienced through his death and resurrection in John chapter 20, verse 17. Go and tell my friends this is the instruction of Christ to Mary. Right, that I am ascending to my God and to your God. That which he alludes to in verse 17, and he exercises in verses 19 through 27. The same relationship that Jesus enjoys with the Father is now open to all who trust in him, to those who would be born again. Jesus brings peace where there is hostility. The resurrection brings peace. Listen to this. Verses 19, 20, 21, and as we will see in just a moment, 26. Four times in eight verses we see Jesus talk of peace. And a call to Thomas. Who was perhaps, like many of you, struggling to, to grasp The intricacies of what Jesus' other friends are claiming to have observed. I hear what you're saying, but really? Like, like, really? I placed all my hope in Jesus. I was was trusting Him. I was banking on Him. And then, as opposed to witnessing my friend take possession of this crown, he was nailed to a tree. In what world do a cross and a crown coexist? Thomas gets a bad rap, doesn't he? Thomas gets a, a bad rap. In fact, he's been given a nickname. you familiar with it. Thomas' nickname. What do we call Thomas? Doubting Thomas. And he created history. <laughs> right? <laughs> This might be one of the hardest places for us his friend is doubting. And so how is Jesus going to respond to doubting Thomas? What's that going to look like? You probably have in your mind what you imagine this looks like as the story moves forward. Let's go back to John chapter 20 and let's see. Verse 26. Eight days later his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And Thomas has been lingering in doubt for eight days. Man, when we leave here on Friday evening, when we leave on Good Friday and we are in darkness, man, we we have to to struggle and to fight the urge to immediately jump into Sunday morning, even though it's just a few days away. Can you imagine eight days in silence? Eight days in in doubt? Man, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and and stood among them and said, what is this teaching us? And this teaches us something powerful about Jesus here. Right? That, that when Jesus desires entrance, that there is no keeping in that. We see what that looks like here. Right? Where you're, you're here, and everybody has a framework. Everybody's got personal experience and difficulty and hardship. Right? Things that we have gone through that shape the way that we feel. Even about what we're hearing this morning, know this. Right? That, that Jesus is persistent. And Jesus is powerful. And here, we observe a physically closed door, unable to prevent Jesus' entrance in to be with his friends. Jesus came, he stood among them, and he said, again, here it is, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, what are you doing? Like, why are you doubting Man, didn't I show you all these incredible things, and like now, like, I spoke of it, and I foreshadowed toward it. The reality of of my crucifixion, subsequent resurrection, why in the world the struggle, man? Is that what we see from Thomas, from Jesus? No, it's not. What does he say? He says, put your finger here, see my hands Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus doesn't show up at great thomas. He doesn't show up at the little thomas in front of his friends. He doesn't call him to the side like a high school chemistry teacher, right in front of the entire class. Ooh, at which point you go, man, wouldn't it have been better just to say it in front of the whole class? Like everybody knows what's going on here. What games are we playing, right? It's not what Jesus does. Instead, he takes this opportunity to show his friends what it looks like to embrace the doubter without embracing the doubt. He announces once again peace before lovingly and compassionately addressing Thomas, his friend, who had lost his faith before calling him in, verse 27, to believe again. Compassion, by kindness. We see the way that the Lord deals and addresses with a down heart. We see the way that the, that the Lord deals with those who are, who are struggling in their belief. I don't know where you have been, right, all of you. I know the story of many of you. But many of you I don't. One thing I do know is that well, what we read here in John chapter 20 is true. Like the character of Christ is on display here in this really beautiful way. He displays kindness, persistence. Bringing Thomas, calling Thomas back into belief. To which Thomas answered him, verse 28, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, verse 29, have you believed that you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have Believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verse 31. What is all of this about? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And Jesus restores life. Or Jesus restores restores life. We sit here now, preparing to practice obedience to the call to go. That's what we do every week, right? As God's people, we gather together and we we gospel one another. And we go to the word and we seek to, from it, understand and unpack the sovereign plan and purposes of God throughout redemption history. To rescue a people, the nations, bring them into, into fellowship with Him self. So, we do this and then we, we go out into the world as missionaries. We go as people who have been equipped by the word and the power of the spirit to communicate that Jesus is indeed alive. that The resurrection is reality and that it changes everything. Man, as we sit in this room preparing to practice obedience to the call, this is just the beginning. Awaiting the return of our resurrection king, the call of John chapter 20 remains the same. What is it? What is all of this about? Here it is. Believe. Believe. If Jesus is alive, then, then there is hope for the Thomases in this room. Right? If Jesus is alive, then there is, there is hope for the Thomases. Right? That you are faithfully praying for, sharing the gospel with. Do you believe that the gospel possesses this type of power? Do you believe that, that Jesus does uh, still today what we observe here in John chapter 20? And then he opens hard hearts. So he gives birth to belief in the lives of those who are struggling with, with doubt. And what an encouraging passage we see this resurrection warning. If Jesus is alive, then there is hope. Jesus is alive, there is a new model by which God's people care for and address those struggling with disbelief. Hear me this morning as we prepare to come to the Lord's table and observe together this this meal. Remembering the broken body of Christ and and His spilled blood. A meal that we enjoy differently because of the reality of the resurrection. Then what a sad meal if Jesus is not alive. A tiny meal if Jesus isn't alive, right? But if He is, doesn't it change the way that we come to the table? Doesn't it change the way we take the bread and the cup? We remember what Christ has done to save us. A true life is possible because Jesus has been raised. Did you hear me? A true life is possible because Jesus has been raised. True life is obtainable because Jesus has experienced hell upon the cross. So those whom he loves with this beautiful, obedient, self-sacrificing love could through faith be forgiven. Let there be no confusion. Okay, what we see here this morning, this is, this is the beating heart of the Christian faith. This, this reality that we come together around on Easter that says that the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb serve as evidence that his life, perfect and, and sinless completely and utterly unique from any one of us, and his death are indeed sufficient to save us. Those who have so boldly and so blatantly rebelled from God and his perfect will for our lives. Moralism, it's like a professional sport in the South, does not save Genealogy cannot save. The God of Islam cannot save. The God of Joseph Smith cannot save. The universe, it can't save. Mother Earth cannot save. Your intellect, you can't save. Your charm, smooth, right? Can't save. Your power, your prestige, cannot and will not save you. And I want you to hear me here, okay? I want us to connect for a moment. And I say this to you because I love you. I say this to you this morning because I I care for you. I say this to you this morning because there is a great irony that you are in need of throwing yourself into this morning. And that irony is this, that the empty tomb of Jesus assures for you and I the possibility of the abundant life. Not as the world would define it, but as as God defines it. Not as the world would intend culture, our own sinful hearts and expectations, but as God would so have. Let's consider this morning as we close our time and prepare to take of the Lord's table as we give of our tithes and offerings all in response to what we have spent time sitting in this morning. This reality that what we are doing is not wasted. That what we are doing is not futile. That your missional efforts right, is it's not in vain. Right, your love for Christ is not it's not loss, right? And it's purposeful. It's good. It's what God would have for us. As so we prepare to come to the table, let's reflect on these realities. Consider, perhaps, all right, areas of doubt in your own life and know right, that Jesus deals compassionately, kindly, drawing us into a deeper, deeper understanding. Cast yourself upon Jesus. Believe in Jesus, John chapter 20. All of these things recorded so that we might believe. Believe on Christ. Then believe on Christ today. Believe on the hope of the resurrection because he is risen. He is risen indeed. There you go. Hey, let's pray together. you hey.